This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The right to speak and organize without fear of intimidation or harassment is foundational to preserving a healthy democracy, particularly where an association's views challenge popular opinion. This right to speech and assembly is enshrined in our Constitution's First Amendment. But when government itself asserts the power to compel organizations to reveal a list of supporting members, the Supreme Court may be the last bulwark against infringement. Such is the matter in the recently decided case, Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta, in which the state of California tried to enforce a law requiring nonprofits to disclose their donor lists. The plaintiffs contended that such disclosure would unnecessarily intrude on the right to assembly and effectively chill speech by leaving supporters fearful for future recriminations were lists to become public knowledge. After a journey of more than a decade through lower courts, on July 1st, Chief Justice John Roberts ruled in a 6-3 decision against the state of California and in favor of Americans for Prosperity Foundation. Why did it take a Supreme Court case to reestablish a fundamental constitutional right? And how broadly can this finding be applied to protect future nonprofits and their supporters from being swept into a future ideological maelstrom? My guest today is Trevor Burroughs, Research Fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and in the Center for the Study of Science, as well as Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Trevor has written extensively about the Americans for Prosperity Foundation case and has helped the plaintiffs prepare their case for the courts. Trevor will share with us the history of the case, the facts presented in the trial, and the implications of the ruling for nonprofit privacy everywhere. When I return, I'll be joined by Cato Institute's Trevor Burroughs. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Cato Research Fellow and fellow podcast host, Trevor Burroughs. Welcome to Hubwonk, Trevor. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, before before we dive into our conversation, I want to uh, recommend to our listeners, uh, you're a fellow podcast host. Uh, you have a podcast called Free Thoughts. And I do recommend it to our listeners. I find it refreshing. In full disclosure, Cato, and of course, your point of view is uh, more libertarian. Uh, you're very candid and transparent about that. But libertarians don't have a party. So you, you don't have a uh, partisanship uh, or a party to defend. So as I like well, to there say- There is a libertarian party, but it is collapsing. Well, it has fair, collapsed. Fair enough, fair enough. There is a libertarian party. But I like to say, I hope neither of us is wrong on purpose, right? We, we may be wrong, but it's not out of party loyalty. So and incidentally, to Today is the release of the 400th episode of Free Thoughts. Uh, Congratulations. Which features Radley Balco today. Wonderful, wonderful. So uh, I appreciate your time today. Now, you've written extensively about the case we're going to talk about, Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta. Uh, I'd like to walk before we run. Let's start at the beginning with the basic facts of the case that was just, uh, as of this recording, the decision was handed down yesterday. So the facts in the case. Well, it was just, it actually all begins around 2010. So in California, which is, of course, a major fundraising state, it's about a quarter of the assets of the United States. Uh, California, like a lot of states, requires nonprofits and charities that fundraise within that state to file something, usually with the attorney general's office, sometimes with the secretary of state's office. It's usually your IRS forms and, and a few other things. But in about 2010, the attorney general's office in California started demanding that in, in addition to the standard IRS forms, that nonprofits, which, you know, 100,000 nonprofits that fundraise in California 
had to submit to them what's called a Schedule B, which is a list of your top donors. It's either people who gave you more than $5,000 or gave at least 2% of your revenue. And this was problematic for a variety of reasons. First of all, uh, only three states actually do this. And it was just a decision by the Attorney General's office to kind of switch everything. And Americans for Prosperity Foundation, which is, uh, you know, for many people, this evil connected organization, and Thomas More Law Center, uh, both resisted this. And they started getting essentially penalties uh, for the uh, imposed on them by the attorney general. So in 2013, they, they sued and they said, we have a right to keep our donors anonymous. This went on for a while, as you can tell. Uh, Cato has been involved with the case since the first time I went to the Ninth Circuit in 2015. I think we filed a total of five or six briefs in the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the claim is, is this idea that Barring a compelling or some sort of interest of the government, the presumptive right is a right to give anonymously. Um, the leading case on this is a case from 1958 called NAACP v. Alabama, in which the state of Alabama, if you think about 1958 and what was going on in Alabama, vis mm-hmm. the NAACP, the state of Alabama demanded the donor list of Alabamians who gave to the NAACP. And for the obvious purpose, they, they claimed that there was a legitimate purpose of, you know, monitoring fraud or something like this. But the obvious purpose was, purpose was to intimidate or allow for better intimidation of supporters of the NAACP. And so the Supreme Court in that case ruled that uh, the donors of the NAACP had a right, a First Amendment right, to give anonymously. And that has been expanded and, and changed in different ways. But yesterday's opinion was the first time in quite a while that the court revisited this and, and really gave pretty good opinion, a quite good opinion on uh, in the words of Justice Samuel Alito and his concurrence of uh, now a test, a constitutional test with teeth, were his words, over the question of disclosure. So it's a, okay. it's a big decision. So uh, for the benefit of the listeners who are not uh, constitutional scholars, let's just unpack sort of the essence of the case. Is it the case, is it well established and uh, established in law that uh, we all universally have a right to give anonymously uh, and therefore burdens the state with uh, the the proof they have a compelling interest to overcome or defeat that right uh, and and access information that should and would otherwise be private. It, do I have that? Yes, that, that was the case before. I, it, uh, it's a longstanding principle. Um, uh, it has some issues with it. We can talk about where people debate, such as in the campaign, in the more campaign context, but in this California context, this was all nonprofits and charities, right? If you were, if it was a food bank, if it was a political cause, if it was anything along those lines, uh, they were demanding disclosure. So it was outside of the campaign context. But yes, g- generally speaking, there is a presumptive right to anonymous association. The framers definitely believed that. Uh, the framers, like, you know, Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense, and for at least the first three months until he had to kind of out himself, he, he wrote he wrote it anonymously. He published it anonymously. And that's you know, that's writing, right? The, f- the Federalist Papers were written under the pseudonym Publius, and uh, um, every anti-Federalist paper too, pretty much, were written under pseudonyms too. It was very common to write under pseudonyms at the time. Now the question would be: Now, if, if someone was funding Common Sense, do they have a right to anonymity? And the framers would have said absolutely, especially for that example. I mean, wouldn't the British have loved to know who was funding Common Sense, you know, and, and figure out a way to get it off the shelves? Because as Justice Scalia wrote in his McConnell v. FEC dissent, if you can pretend that you're going after money and not speech, it affords opportunities to people who want to censor and say, well, we're not censoring speech. We're just making it illegal to spend any money on speech or, or we're censoring 
you make it illegal to spend more than a thousand dollars on book binding or more than a thousand dollars on paper for your newspaper. That that is absolutely a censorship. And so going after donors uh, has long been a thing that governments, repressive governments do. And so in this context, uh, yes, the First Amendment affords this right. And as you said, it is defeasible. So the, the government has to has the burden to offer an interest. And that's how we do constitutional law in a general sense. Like if you have a right and the government wants to come and take that right, then the government's burden is to, depending on what, what the right is, is to provide a compelling, substantial, or reasonable basis uh, for why they're abridging your right. And then to explain to the courts that it is also tailored to the goal that the government is seeking. That's true about Second Amendment rights, true about First Amendment rights. It's true about a lot of rights. So you, you um, pointed to an important case, NAACP versus the state of Alabama. And again, our listeners probably know what Alabama would have been like in 1958. And in that case, uh, the state tried to make the case that they had a compelling need. And I guess you're implying that it couldn't have been anything other than to intimidate donors. In this case, this is California, this is in Alabama, and it's 2021 or 2010, as it were, and not uh, 1958. What compelling reason would California have for accessing this information if other than just as Alabama 1958, other than to potentially intimidate donors or dissuade donor, future donors from participating? It's a great question because it's important. It's a good sort of window into how constitutional law works. So I helped the attorney for this case prepare for oral argument doing what's called moot courts. And we really focused a lot on these kind of questions. And there was no point that the petitioners, either America for Prosperity Foundation or Thomas Moore Law Center, wanted to deny that there was an interest that the state had in getting this information. The state said, we have an interest in protecting against charitable fraud. Well, of course, that's, I mean, sure, the state does have an interest in monitoring and protecting against fraud and charitable giving. So you didn't want to go in and argue, no, this isn't a state interest. You wanted to argue that they were going about this in a particularly ham-fisted way. Uh, So that's when you go after what's called the tailoring component as opposed to the interest component. We'll just concede, yes, the state has an interest in monitoring charitable fraud. But in so doing, you cannot hit the right of private association with a sledgehammer in such a way that it does not actually really forward the stated goal of the state. And this was really got the why the state of California lost. Now, I'm not saying that I think that there was, you know, some nefarious motive, so unlike the Alabama case, which was quite clear. I do think that, you know, Kamala Harris was the first named, the first named defendant in this when she was attorney general of California. Our, our, and current, vice, our current, our vice, current president. vice president. Mm-hmm. And I do think that, you know, many on the left, and of course, the attorney general of California is always on the left. Many on the left are very suspicious of all political giving. Uh, when this happened, when this when this call for the Schedule Bs came out, it was right about the time, if, if you remember, when the Obama administration was using the IRS to go after 501c4s via a, a really a really bad and ultimately repealed policy, uh, which was an attempt to really squelch political speech. So I think there were some people who was like, we need to know who these donors are. But I also think there are people who said, we need to monitor charitable fraud. The problem was, and this is what's really interesting about this case, I do a lot of Supreme Court cases, I work on a lot of them, and I, I don't know, I haven't worked on many where there is actually a trial. So for the non-lawyers, uh, when you go to a federal district court and say, my First Amendment rights are being violated, almost always those cases are decided on what's called summary judgment. So in a basic court context, right, a trial determines facts, and then the, the 
court determines law and you you appeal based on the de determinations of law you don't appeal on the facts sometimes the facts are determined by a jury sometimes by a judge so in this case you know you could say we are being shilled in our first amendment activity because uh, this is what americans for prosperity said because of these demand of donor identities uh, and our donors are afraid now that their information could leak and they will get death threats and things like this well, usually you just sort of assert these things to a court and there's no trial, but they actually had a trial. And in the trial, they showed that there were death threats given to donors of Americans for Prosperity and Thomas Ford Law Center. There were massive leaks of the information. Uh, up to 1,800 uh, Schedule Bs were leaked online. It was fairly easy to find who these donors were. Um, so all of this was, was shown and the court determined this as the factual record. That's the factual record of the case. There were threats against there were leaks. This is a problem. And that's what's super interesting, that that was appealed up and the Ninth Circuit said, well, we don't really care about this. So in, in this case, when you when you looked at the way the argument worked, it was different than a lot of arguments at the, at the Supreme Court, because there's always a lot of hypotheticals. Like, what if this happened? What if this happened? You didn't need hypotheticals in this. You were like, you know, Your Honor, if you look at the record, there were threats. This is not hypothetical. There were threats. The concern in this case, when we were going into it, was whether or not Americans for Prosperity would win a narrow victory that of which the principle would be, if you have a trial and you demonstrate actual threats against your donors, then you get a right to donor anonymity, which would only apply to a very small group of, of nonprofits and charities. Or would they have a broader principle that said, you don't need to show threats, the presumptive right, you don't need to wait for the death threat before you have donor anonymity. And the court held the latter. Uh, that we were very pleased that the court held a broader principle as opposed to a narrow principle. Even in Sotomayor's dissent, she, she says, you know, I would I, I could see myself holding for just American for Prosperity Foundation in this case, because they were there were threats against them and there were leaks of their donor information. But she didn't want to go as broad as the court went, but thankfully the court went, went quite broad. So in at a high level, it wasn't on principle that they judged. They said, listen, uh, one, though you have proven that you have gotten death threats, one not need to prove one has had death threats in order to deserve the right to the privacy of one's donors. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's a really important holding. And I, I think quite obvious from the constitution and very important in the current times. I mean, it's, you know, politics has always been you know, kind of rough and tumble in America, but it's pretty bad now. And every, it seems like every other day we see a story of someone who's getting outed for their donations in one way or another, and that shouldn't happen to anyone. And it's, that's why this is a very important ruling today. Sure. And on principle, I, I, I want to get into, uh, it's hard to believe how many people, uh, you, uh, Cato uh, um, had a friend of the court brief uh, for this case. Uh, you've done work, as you said, uh, but there were 300 or so other nonprofits that joined the case. When I looked at that list, it was all over the board. It's not um, right and left. Uh, it's, it's some that are completely apolitical. Uh, so in a sense, they're saying, look, we may not be targeted with death threats now, who knows where, where the world will go? And given that so few organizations are, are in the middle, one has to assume wherever you stand, half the world might want to, to do you some harm if uh, those those lists were disclosed. It, you know, do I have a fair assessment? Absolutely. Of that? And, and um, it's, it's important to note that as the um, as the Republican Party has become more populist and I would say less principled, we've seen it used to be the case that the left was all about disclosure. They were they were very into dis disclosure. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. All this kind of stuff. So, in the Citizens United opinion, for example, like they up, they uphold disclosure 
in that opinion. And, and disclosure has generally been upheld in campaign contexts uh, in some pretty ridiculous circumstances, to be honest. But the, the Republicans wanted donor anonymity. But in recent years, you've seen Republicans going after sort of the George Soros kind of conspiracy, mm -hmm. who's funding the left-wing organizations, what is the quote-unquote dark money that's funding you know, the left in some way, going after Black Lives Matter, who's funding Black Lives Matter. So you see both sides attacking and trying to figure out where the money is coming from, which to me is a very sort of unsalubrious way of doing politics. It's, it leads to ad hominem attacks, it, it, it ignores the issues. You shouldn't be able, you know, it's not an argument against someone to say, oh, you made that argument, but you're wrong because of who funded you. That's not a good argument. So both sides are now really into uncovering donors. And, and I say increasingly so with the Republican Party. So again, this benefits everyone. Like if you're a Planned Parenthood supporter living in the deep South, where it's deeply pro, pro-life, uh, you don't want your neighbors to be able to literally just go onto the internet and figure out what your political donations are, or if you give to BLM or, or any of those things. And that's, that's why this is a really important decision. It's not that far from saying, uh, uh, sharing the right to uh, uh, vote uh, without disclosure. I mean, uh, were one to have to publicly uh, pull the lever in front of one's peers and neighbors, uh, it would affect the outcome of any election, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. And it's, it is vital. Uh, and, for anyone. I mean, we've we've seen it before. There's the, the most important thing that the court does in these cases is they if they uphold a principle that applies across the board. Some people might hate it today. And like the left might be saying, oh, this is horrible. You're letting Coke-funded organizations become these sort of things. The left might hate it. But in 10 years, they might suddenly love it. I mean, they definitely people on the left loved it when it was NAACP v. Alabama. They were definitely supportive of that. And the ACLU, to their credit, came in on the side of Americans for Prosperity Foundation to uphold these general principles. But in the 50s, it was the right wing going after communist, quote unquote, communist organization, who's funding communist organizations, those kind of things. And so, you know, you want to avoid the political teeter-totter, teeter you know, immediate interest as perceived by the party and uphold the basic constitutional principle of donor anonymity lacking, but for an important and narrowly tailored government interest. Now, this case, uh, the defendant in this case is the AG of, uh, of California at the time, or I guess the current AG. Uh, and so this is a, a stake. And as you mentioned earlier in the show, there's only three states that do uh, mandate uh, disclosure. What does this speak for the federal government, the IRS? All this information is disclosed. The IRS knows uh, when you fill out your taxes where you gave your money. Does this have any implications for the federal government? It's a great question because it's something we pon we pondered a lot. You know, when you prepare for arguing a case in the Supreme Court, you're trying to think of the, the hard question that you're going to get from some of the justices and, and say they're often uh, slippery slope arguments, or right? And then you, you kind of have a choice here. You can either bite the bullet and say, like, yes, you, this this also it's not clear that IRS um, you know has a right to this information. That's you know biting the bullet, or you can deflect and say, no, Your Honor, it's it's a that's a different case, and, and generally speaking, you should never say that to the Supreme Court. It's considered like an extreme dodge. But you say that's a different case. That maybe maybe it's true that the IRS also, if if we win this case and someone next brings a case using the principles of this case against the IRS collection of this, then maybe that's true. This court has not decided that. We wrote about that in our brief because we were saying you know it's not clear the IRS has a right to this information either, but. There's one paragraph in Chief Justice John Roberts' opinion where he addresses this idea that, that, that uh, this applies to the IRS now, so the IRS can't have this information. 
And he says what's obvious, that's a very, very different context with very, very different state interests where they're doing tax, tax, you know, trying to have a just and legal and above the board tax system. In California, one of the reasons for this, as I, as I pointed out, was that the states don't use this. Uh, only three states do. California didn't use it at all until because the Schedule B came in in 2001. So for 10 years, they didn't request this at all. And then at the trial, it was shown that when state officials were testifying, they said, how much do you need these Schedule Bs to, in your words, you know, monitor charitable fraud? And they said, out of 540 investigations that we did into charitable fraud, we used them only five times. And even when we used, we had those five times that we we got the, we used the Schedule B, we could have gotten that information in a, in a ton of other ways. So they basically went at the trial and just admitted that they don't really need or use this information. Now, what would the IRS say? I don't know, uh, but it's definitely a different case. Mm-hmm. I see. All right, let's go back to uh, uh, draw the lens into the actual decision itself. Again, it was just rendered. Uh, 24 hours ago, you've been working on this for 10 years, but you know you only had a, a day or so to digest the results. Who wrote the um, the majority opinion, and what was the crux of of the finding? Yeah, so Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion, which is it's a six three opinion with a concurrence by Thomas and a concurrence by Alito, but they would generally agree in all factors except for some sort of inside baseball nuance differences. I thought that the chief was going to write it since. I mean, it's hard to peer into the court and figure out what the black box is, but but the the standard story is that since the backlash to Citizens United, uh, Roberts has been very, very concerned about cases like these, uh, where it implicates, quote unquote, dark money, all these kind of these kind of left wing uh, talking points. I imagine he was trying to get some of the people on the left, quote unquote, left side of the court to join the opinion, but it ultimately failed. His opinion is short. It's very straightforward. It says that the AG's request for Schedule B is facially unconstitutional, not just as applied to the plaintiffs, uh, the petitioners, uh, Thomas More Law Center and Americans for Prosperity Foundation. It's just facially unconstitutional in all of its applications because it does not meet exacting scrutiny. Now, we get into this sort of <laughs> metaphysical discussion of scrutiny, which is like angels dancing on the head of a pin kind of stuff. What is the difference between strict scrutiny and exacting scrutiny? I don't really know, uh, but we do have a test now in a case that really said this does not pass muster because it's not narrowly tailored to an important governmental interest. And as, as I mentioned, Alito said that now has real teeth. And so we could apply that going forward to other disclosure regimes. Uh, the dissent is written by Sotomayor, joined by uh, Justices Kagan and Breyer. And they argue, and this was a concern we had going into our argument, they argue I would say not, you know, incoherently, but but incorrectly, that there was no actual burden the organizations in this case. <clears throat> that, that you have to dim that the simple fact of turning over a form that you've already turned over to the IRS and turning it over, um, and you know, they admitted what was on the record that there were threats, that stuff had been leaked, but the state of California had put in different procedures now to protect the donor information. Um, and so they said, what's the burden at the end of the day? It's like nothing. And, and almost none of these charities are burdened, uh, she argued. Like, no one really cares if the fact that they give to the, a food bank or to some other sort of charitable social the social institution, if they're disclosed, generally speaking. So it's a very, very small percentage, and the burden is light. So that's sort of where they went um, on that case. Uh, so yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a, we've had a lot of crazy alignments over the past 
couple weeks of these last decisions where so many people are joining all over the place, but this one returned to the kind of conservative versus liberal. I, I don't even like describing the justices in such terms, like, because they're complex people with complex jurisprudences, but the, the six Republican appointee versus the three Democrat appointed justices in that split there. Yes, I had wanted to do a show uh, just to discredit the notion that there were such things as conservative and progressive judges. Uh, this season has more or less supported that view. As you say, that like a deck of cards, they've come down on all different sides of all different arguments. But on this one, it lined up along uh, party lines. Now, Sotomayor's decision um, saying it wasn't a burden, uh, I have to say, imagine uh, every state were to require this. That's 50 reforms going to 50 states for those large organizations. So that seems like a burden. I'm also yeah. reminded of security issues. As you say, it was compromised earlier in uh, California's history, but th apparently they've implemented systems that to better protect that information. I'm reminded of a uh, this two weeks ago, ProPublica Pro was able to disclose the uh, tax forms for uh, the top 25 billionaires uh, and their, their tax burden. So even the IRS doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of uh, protecting the information of, of people who are legally compelled to disclose it. Did, yeah. did Sotomayor not find that per, uh, persuasive? Which, well, that was that was part of the point. Again, we were concerned about this going into our argument that essentially, I mean, imagine the, the, what you had to argue from, from Americans for Prosperity Foundation side was that even if the, the disclosure, the, the leaking of the information, which did happen, uh, but even if that didn't happen, this is still unconstitutional, right? right. You, you, it, would, it wouldn't hinge on this fact. Like, you, generally, constitutional questions, you don't want to hinge on, well, if they leaked two documents versus 1800, you know, when does the constitutional line cross? That's a very, very fact-bound kind of way of looking at this. You wanted to be like, no, the disclosure to the government is the harm, even if they didn't leak anything. The fact that they leaked stuff demonstrates, but even if they didn't leak anything, because they don't need it and they don't use it. And so this, this, this is the harm to my, our clients, their fear of this, their chilling effect of this. Um, they don't need this. They don't need it. They don't use it. And that's sort of what Chief Justice Roberts agreed to. Justice Sotomayor said on the other side, she was like, no, right, the disclosure is not the harm. It's, if it's not leaked, uh, the disclosure is not the harm. It's not I a see. sufficient enough burden. I would imagine, given 10 years, uh, the state of California might have taken up, uh, made a better effort to use the information they were compelling uh, to, to, to make the case that it's, it's necessary, but it doesn't seem that they've done that. No, then they didn't. I mean, they with the trial. See, that's the thing about this too is the way the appeal process works. Because of there was a trial, is you kind of you lock the record in place. Like at the lower court, you have this is the findings of the court. There were leaks. You know, we 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 see that there are new security measures, but right now there were leaks. There were threats. This is the finding of the court of uh, the lower court. So the, the subsequent security measures, you could argue, have sort of no relevance to the relevance to the First Amendment question. Uh, which is what which is what they did argue at the court, and and that was the way they argued. Now the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. Okay, and I suppose the last word on this matter, you know, I'd, I'd like to declare victory and go home. Uh, is there any future case or any way that uh, other laws might erode the power or the reach or the teeth, as you I think you refer to the teeth of this uh, case, uh, or or is this now the the law of the land and we move on? Oh, I think that uh, given the current constituency of the court, we're going to see an expand expansion of this principle. As I said, this case is not about campaign-related expenditures, but there's a whole mess of disclosure laws related to campaign and election law that are extremely constitutionally suspect. And we've been going after them for years because, and, and we've been getting some attention from members of the court, such as in dissents from denials of certiorari. 
And so, for example, the state of Delaware requires any organization, whether it's a C3 or a C4, that mentions, that even says the name of a Delaware candidate for office to disclose all of its donors that gave more than $100, $100 or more over a four-year period. So th- there was a case out of, out of Delaware that I wrote a briefing called Delaware Strong Families challenging this provision. It says, you, know, you gave Delaware Strong Families $25 a year for four years, and Delaware Strong Families produced a voter guide for Delaware voters for Delaware uh, the Delaware election saying, here are the different positions that the candidates have on the voter. They did not say vote for this candidate or vote against this candidate. It just was informing the voters. But that thing triggered this disclosure requirement. And and there you have the same question that's very similar to, the, to this case, AFPF versus Bonta. It's like, what could the government's interest possibly be in knowing that you gave $25 a year to a 501c3 in Delaware? Like, what is there any interest in that that overcomes the fact that the person's name will be on a website and you'll be able to know because it's a Christian, a conservative Christian organization that your neighbor gave $25 a year to Delaware Strong Families and maybe you don't like Christians and so now you don't like your neighbor? Like, is that is there any interest that the government has that's more compelling than the interest in privacy? Now, I mean, we could talk about whether it changes at the $10,000 level of giving or the $50,000 level of giving. But the court has been very, very reticent to weigh in on these issues, and they just sort of rubber stamped every disclosure law. So what's coming is using this decision to challenge some of these election-related, really, really crazy state-based ones, and some even the federal one. Because in federal elections, if you spend $200 of your own money advocating independently for a candidate, you have to register with the government. Mm -hmm. Again, what are they thinking? I mean, what are you, $200? What, What harm are we preventing? Are you buying off a candidate for $200? Is it going to give you some sort of thing? Like, did the public need to know who gave someone $200, spent $200 of their own money? Sorry, not give, of their own money. No, I don't think the public needs to know that. So that's coming, and and that'll be a welcome. I think that those are likely to fall to the the really egregious ones. So this will be a, uh, I won't call it a weapon, uh, but at least a foil for going after, let's say, uh, issues that are, let's say, on the line. Uh, I, I kind of asked this before, but uh, we do know that we have a uh, HR1 coming down the pike. And those of us who cherish states' rights uh, and think that's where um, elections ought to be run are concerned about uh, HR1. In that, in that act, there's a, a disclosure act, and uh, it would, in fact, force all 501c4s to publicly disclose their, their donor names. Is this ruling, I, I know you said that it was tailored specifically towards the state. I believe you implied that it's easier to win if you're dealing with a state than if you're uh, approaching the federal government. But will this uh, ruling have an impact on the success of HR1 and the provisions in it? Well, I'm not sure it's easier to win against the state or the federal government. Th- theoretically, the First Amendment applies equally to both. It's just whether or not the, the uh, interests are more substantial with the federal government. But uh, for HR one, I mean that bill is an incredible mess, and uh, maybe you've done past episodes on it. But it is. I mean, one reason it's a mess is that it originally was a mere, was a purely symbolic bill that the Dems wrote to have basically have their entire wish list of free speech and freedom of association destroying policies. That many of which, actually, a huge amount have already been ruled unconstitutional by various federal courts, but they didn't care. Uh, They just put everything into a huge bill. I mean, there are ones that are just like blindingly tyrannical on their face because of this constant fear the left has of dark money, which again is one of those concepts that A, means nothing. It is not actually a relevant concept. B, is brilliant political sloganing. 
And C, it's as soon as suddenly you want to keep your donors private because of Black Lives Matter or something, suddenly you want the protections of this. Uh, so I don't think it will have any effect on the HR1 thing because they already don't care. <laughs> right? <It's> like, <laughs> they already are throwing constitutional caution to the wind to pass a bill that would be at least 75% unconstitutional. Um, so no, it, it, you know, but it, if, if, such, if this bill passes and that create if that actually happens which is unlikely these things will go go down like just just like dominoes i mean federal courts won't even need to like will do much work at all just sort of like what happened with that silly florida law right Mm -hmm. it's just like this will be struck down like so (laughs) fast they will be and this decision does help that yes it gives another reason to strike down these obviously unconstitutional provisions of hr1 that's right well if it does uh, past. We'll have so many more topics for our future podcasts. Uh, Absolutely. Ter- terrific for us. Okay, we're getting close to our uh, end of our time together. I really appreciate your time, Trevor. I want to be sure to, after I've recommended your podcast and you and your writing, I want uh, our listeners to know where we can find you, uh, of course, at Cato, but um, uh, where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me at, at Cato.org uh, and the Free Thoughts podcast is hosted by libertarianism.org, which is a Cato product that's available on Spotify and iTunes and all and all of those fun things, Stitcher. Uh, Free Thoughts, it's at the interview show. Uh, we have philosophers and economists and historians, uh, me and one of my best friends, Aaron Ross Powell, who I've known for 20 years, who I actually turned into a, converted him to libertarianism <laughs> when we were in undergrad. Uh, I had the pleasure of hosting that with him. Cover really any topic under the sun. So about 400 episodes, you can find an episode on basically any. So I, I like it. I mean, that's weird. <laughs> I actually go back and listen to old episodes sometimes, like because I'm trying to remember what someone said, like you know, five years ago, and be like, "Oh, that's a pretty good episode." Well, you can ask me if you want to know because I listen to the, every one of those 400. I really enjoy your show. Thank you so uh, much. You'll go up as number 63, so um, uh, so we're not quite that far. But uh, you, you've been a terrific guest. I really appreciate your time. Uh, you've helped us understand a, a complex issue, and um, I thank you on behalf of our listeners. Thank you for joining. Thanks so much for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's program, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your local podcatcher. If you'd like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, there are several ways to do that. You can offer a favorable review, uh, a five-star rating, or of course, it would be great if you share us with friends. If you have questions or ideas or comments or suggestions for future topics for future episodes, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.